Um, today's scripture reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Um, you shall not murder. Um, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and, then, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come, come and offer your gift. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Hello to everyone at home. <laughs> it is uh, still getting... Uh, taking getting used to talking to a room that's 99% empty, but I know you guys are watching at home. Definitely, uh, we all miss you here. I miss you. Um, you know who else I miss? I, I miss my barber. <laughs> um, I was taking a walk the other day outside, and this is a true story. A guy passed me by, and the first thing I noticed about him was his nice haircut. I was like, where did he get that nice haircut? <laughs> he must have somebody in his house who's really good with the clippers or whatever, but seriously, I saw him walk by, and the first thing my eyes were drawn to were the, was the nice, sharp hairline in the back. I was like, wow, I envy that. Um, so um, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Everybody probably misses their barber, their hairstylist, some of you ladies, maybe you're getting your roots. Um, I don't know, we're all just kind of turning into a bunch of slobs, but uh, hey, that's the corona look. Maybe uh, we can keep doing that after everything goes back to normal, and um, that'd be nice. You know, we don't have to worry about grooming or shaving, a lot of time saved. Well, you know, in the past few weeks, uh, we've been going through a series titled The Gospel Completes the Law, and, uh, you know, trying to get a fresh take on the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to look at Maybe, probably, the most famous commandment of them all, um, people who don't even, you know, go to church or maybe have never even read the Bible, they will probably know, you know, hey, can you name one of the commandments? This will probably be number one answer on, like, family feud. You shall not murder, right? It's the sixth commandment. You know, it's a funny thought, <clears throat> um, but have you ever wondered why? Like, why shouldn't I murder, right? Um, what's, what's the reasoning behind that? Um, you know, after all, much of the world believes in Darwinism. And one of the things that we learned from Darwinism is survival of the fittest, right? And so if that's the way of nature, as many believe, then what's wrong with murder? Um, so it's kind of odd to say it out loud, but yeah, that's one of the things that we're going to address today is what's so bad about murder? Also, if I ask the room here if you've committed murder, the probability would be pretty low, right? That anybody here or in, at home would say yes. Um, I don't know, or maybe not uh, with this shelter in place going on, you know, being stuck with the same people 24-7 going on two months now, right? Um, maybe when we all get out, we're going to notice some, a few siblings missing, Maybe a spouse or here, here or there, right? Um, so maybe uh, when we get back, we should do a roll call and just, you know, make sure everybody's okay. Everybody's accounted for, right? But, uh, you know, shelter in place aside, chances are there are no murderers here. So, okay, we're done, you know. 
box for commandment number six checked. Let's move on to uh, number seven. But what I've discovered is that upon kind of just deeper study and investigation, this very short four-word commandment is uh, deceivingly simple. And actually, if you look at it, I found it to be quite, and it's kind of a weird word to, to describe it, quite beautiful. You shall not murder is actually now, having done this, very beautiful to me. And it rings on different and resonates on different layers. And, and I'm excited to kind of bring that to you, and I hope you're blessed. So um, I'm going to bring this message to you in three parts. Part one is why murder is evil and the anger underlying murder. Why murder is evil and the anger underlying murder. Part two, the gospel's power to resolve our anger. The gospel's power to resolve our anger. And part three, practical applications of the gospel's power. Practical applications of the gospel power. Um, so part one, why murder is evil. And then um, kind of the second part of part one is the anger underlying murder. Now, if someone were to ask you, just think about this, why you shouldn't commit murder, what would your answer be right now? Uh, hello, because it's murder, right? I mean, that's kind of where we would all go, right? 90% of us would probably answer that way, and I would have answered that way. Pretty straightforward, but as I said earlier, it's actually very different when you think about it, very beautiful, very complex. And I'll tell you why. This commandment is not, not only about murder, okay? It is, but it's also about love. And it's probably more about love than it is about murder. So let me explain. We all love things and people for a variety of different reasons, right? Um, we love something because it's entertaining or it tastes good or, or we like this guy, we love this guy because he's rich or, and he's nice to me or we, like, we love this woman because she's pretty and nice to me. Um, but a lot of those times, those reasons can change or they can be taken away completely. And then what? Then what reason does a person have to love you? Can we trust that that person will love you if the reasons that they love you are no longer there? A lot of times, no, the love ends. So whether it was a close friend, former, or a significant other, an ex, that love a lot of times ends. And then we're left wondering, was that really love in the first place, right? You ever feel that way? You lose a relationship and, and then you start questioning the past like 5, 10, 15, you know, just any number, right? Was that really love? I've been there and then I know that anyone else who's, who's been there uh, will tell you that that is a very dark and painful and, and lonely place to be. So love based on those things can often be lost. But the reason for your value that underlies this sixth commandment, and for that matter, you know, all of God's laws, the reason for your value that underlies all of that is an innate quality that can't be taken away. It can't be taken away from you. It can't fade with time. It's uh, this, this innate quality. It's a love that won't decrease due to a pandemic due to recession, due to your shrinking bank account, 
Um, it's not a love that's going to be based on your earning potential or your looks, your mental stability, your pleasantness to be around, <laughs> your physical abilities, your past, your present, your future, your aging. It's not based on any of that. So what is this innate quality in every one of us? It's that you and I have been created, have been made in God's image. And that is an inequality within us that cannot change or be taken away with time. So Yahweh's word, you know, God being created in God's image, God's personal name that he reveals to us is, is Yahweh. He tells us some amazing implications about what it means to be made in God's image. So you don't have to go there, but I'm just going to uh, uh, read for you, kind of just go through it here in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Again, you don't have to go there, but I'll just kind of read some things out. And remember how he said it's like this commandment to not murder is, is multi-layered. Um, there's some stuff here that I want you to notice, okay? I, I want to point out for you. First, in uh, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So notice it's our, not my, it's our. So he's talking about the Trinity there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Think about this. That means that if we're made in God's image, that, that image inside of, inside of us, there is something in us that is meant to reflect the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three. It's interesting, isn't it? And you could have a, a fun little time in one of your devotionals or whatever, just at lunch or you got a lot of time nowadays, just kind of get a, a notebook and just jot down, what are the different attributes of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit that I see reflected in me or in people that I know? It's really kind of cool. It's a life-giving exercise. So, that's one thing to notice, um, one implication of being created in God's image. Second, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In his own image. I want you to notice the word own. What does own mean? What does it imply? There's an intimacy in that word own. Right? I want you to picture your own parents. Picture their faces. I want you to picture, if you have children, picture your own children. Do you see the image of the parent in the child? I mean, just looking at you guys here, I can see images of your parent in you, whether you're 15 or 50. There's an intimacy there. Uh, when Karis was first born, our, our, our our first child, me and Christie's first child, it was all so foreign, right? You have this little baby with hair and they're all red coming out of the womb and it's like, oh my goodness. And I'm this young man, I'm just like, this is so crazy. It's just so, so weird. And I'm looking at this baby and I'm, this baby's looking back at me and, and I'm just like, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. And then I look at the different features and I look at her ear and guess what? She has my own ear. And in that moment, it seems like the strangest thing, but in that moment, I realized this baby is me. 
It's like connected to me. And in that moment, because she was in my image, my own image, there was a connectedness that wasn't there before, a bond, a link of intimacy and love. God, or Yahweh, again, which is his personal name that he personally disclosed to you, Yahweh created us in his own image. And by virtue of this fact, there's an innate intimacy that's supposed to be there between us and him, Yahweh himself, and with one another. That's beautiful, right? Third, verse 27 and uh, the end of verse 27 and then 28. Um, male and female, he created them. Male and female. I'm not going to talk about roles today, but we've talked about that important issue before. For today, suffice to, to say that uh, both male and female are created in Yahweh's image. The male and the female are created to together be, make this beautiful, complete, glorious picture of the image of God. And there's a reflection of that in the unity of the other. And again, we've talked about this before. And the next one is kind of related to that fourth. The fourth implication of being in God's image. The next verse. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful. Increase in number, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we see that Yahweh blesses both male and female to be a team together, to go forth and to be fruitful and to multiply. It's a picture of, it's an imagery of bounty, right? Imagery of, of prosperity and life, just bubbling forth. All of this from the image of God. That's what all, that's, those are just a few of the implications. And so we get to go, do this, go forth, multiply, and subdue, and have dominion together as male and female. So let's take in here, let's pause, and let's take in the scenery of what it be, means to be made in his image. He has created us to be male and female in his own image, this intimacy for us, this intimacy with one another, and out of this, Yahweh entrusts to us the task of growing and multiplying and, and prospering, right? Which in itself is a form of creating, right? Multiplying. And then we're, so, we're to venture forth out into the world, carrying with us this image of God, reflecting that glory of the image of God on everything, every living creature, all of creation, all the fish, all the birds, every living creature that moves on the ground and to our fellow man and woman. When I think about that, and I think about how he has trusted us to take his divine goodness and glory and joy and innovation, right, his innovative powers, and to reflect that, it, it's like a symphony of creative beauty composed by God himself moving across the world. And God, Yahweh, is looking to handpick people to play in the orchestra who will play that symphony so that we can bless the world. He's inviting you and I to join him and others and play. Isn't that beautiful? The image of God in us. That's, that's just a sliver 
of what it means to be created in his image. I hope you're getting a sense of the beauty of not only Yahweh himself, but of yourself. Sense of beauty of yourself. And the sense of beauty of your neighbor, the person sitting next to you. All that because we have the image of Yahweh in us. But then we have something tragic happening in Genesis 3, where people looked at this you know, Yahweh's invitation, his, we considered it, and then, you know, oh, this creative, beautiful symphony of glory and light and truth of God moving forth across the face of the earth? Nah, I don't want it. And so we rejected that invitation. And not only did we reject the invitation, but in the process, we chose to break our personal relationship with him and break and mar and damage and kind of darken and misshape that image of God in which we were created. Now, this might seem kind of like a little bit out there, but... Think about this. Isn't this the same kind of damage that happens when families break up? Right? When we have the image of God in the family kind of break up, or when we have friendships break up, or when we have spouses break up, all of those things are blessings that flow out of being made in the image of God. And now when those break, hey, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a churchgoer to know that that causes pain. You understand what I'm saying? Right? So do you see, that's why there's so much pain and chaos when we break those things that aren't supposed to be broken as a blessing from God. It's a complete destruction of the most basic foundation of who you are, a being created in God's image, and nothing else has that privilege in all of creation, only mankind. And so... Um, we have Genesis 9. We'll project that for you. How does this relate then to our question of the day? You know, murder, murder and why is it evil? Genesis 9, 6 through 7. You can read that together. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. I'm reading a, maybe a different version. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So verse 6, draw your attention there. Whoever sheds the blood of man, for by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, there will be judgment. There is a cost. There is a punishment for shedding the blood of man, and, which is just a euphemism for killing someone, for murder. Why? Why? Because this man was made in the image of God. So all of this beautiful, you know, all these beautiful implications and this, this scenery of, of the beauty of being created in God's image and everything, you know, that, that's included therein, murder, it, it's just a rebellious attack against all of that. <laughs> it's, it's just an attack on God's beauty, His goodness, His truth. God. It's a crime against God first and foremost because we are in, in His image. It's also a crime against others 
and your own self. Think about that. When you murder somebody, it's a crime against yourself too. Not only that person, but yourself too. Why? Because you are rejecting and you are breaking your, the image of God that is in that person. However marred it is, the argument can be made, well, they're sinful, so the image of God. No. Genesis 9 comes after Genesis 3, <laughs> right? And Genesis 9, God still tells us we were made in his image right? So it's a crime against God, against others, and against yourself because the image of God is being desecrated in us with murder. Uh, Verse 7 says to go forth and multiply. What is murder? (laughs) Murder is not multiply. It's not multiplication. It's subtraction, right? Again, it's going against God and his beautiful plan. So all of this chaos and brokenness that we chose is what the Bible refers to as sin. I know that's not a popular word. It's just a word to describe all the things that I've described and more. And murder is a destructive act against everything of God, like peace and light and truth and order and beauty, all parts of his image in which we're created. And so rather than be united in holding God and one another up in holy love as fellow bearers of the image of God, we instead are divided and strike each other down in murder as convenience and circumstance suits us. That's the spirit of murder. And this is why Yahweh hates sin. And this is why people all around the world, whether they're Christian or not, have laws. And whether we choose to call it sin or not, some other word, sin divides us from the one who created us. And it divides us from others who bear the same image as we do. And it unites us to death because we've rejected God who is life. So if anyone asks you, why is murder bad? After today, you'll have a better idea at least. Why? And you have a larger answer, a biblical worldview, better than just because it's murder, (laughs) right? And I hope you'll be able to define murder in terms of attacking this innate image, this precious innate image of God that we are all created in, you and your fellow neighbor. So the next part of, of part one was the, the root underlying murder, right? So why is murder bad? And then the root underlying murder. And Jesus Christ gave a sermon about this root beneath the murder, okay? The root that kind of leads to murder. So let's take a look. Um, Matthew chapter five, and I think we're gonna have that, yeah, projected. And in Matthew 5, verse 21, it begins there. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is on a, uh, you know, in front of crowds of people and he's giving this amazing sermon. And he gets to this section on uh, murder. And, um, you know, we had our, our scripture read, um, you know, this portion. And then um, the part that, uh, you know, it, it continues, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court, verse 25. Do it while you're still with him on the way or, hand, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge 
may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What is he talking about? Verse 21, he's talking about murder. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Because anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But then Jesus takes it deeper. He tries to get to the root. And he says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, or um, insults his brother, is liable to judgment to the council or the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. It's interesting to me that Jesus takes things to a different level here. But maybe we feel like Jesus takes things to a different level because we're too used to having lowered the bar. Maybe where Jesus is taking it to is actually the original intent, right? What am I saying here? Well, the people at this time, they were thinking, they they were all good people. Why? Because they never murdered anybody, probably like most of us here, right? So they weren't breaking the law, at least not the letter of the law. But what Jesus was telling them that is that they were breaking the spirit of the law. And what is the spirit of the law? Well, that's what really matters here. That's what really matters in all of the laws. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is always talking about the spirit of the law. You may be observing on the surface and in front of people's eyes and maybe even deceiving yourself that externally you're observing all of God's laws and therefore you are living under deception that you are righteous and good. But Jesus is saying, but there's more to it. I hope you're not missing the main point. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was telling them, (laughs) it's no accident, right, that the words in verse 21 where he's talking about uh, whoever murders, you are liable to judgment. He uses the same exact wording in the same exact order for whoever is angry with your brother, whoever just says an insult, whoever calls somebody a moron, a fool, stupid. Jesus was telling them that in Yahweh's eyes, you don't have to be a murderer to be as guilty as a murderer, you will end up the same if you have this anger and hatred in you. So underlying the sixth commandment to not murder, you know, is murder the real issue? No. Um, If you will, it's, it's just the presenting symptom. The real problem underneath that Jesus wants to expose and he wants us to confront and address and repent of is this underlying root of anger and disdain that leads us to insult. And you don't even have to say the insult, right? If you're just thinking of it, right? Because again, that's what Jesus is thinking of. Do you know what the first recorded murder in human history was? 
It's like a pretty easy trivia question, right? A lot of people, Cain murdering Abel. But do you know this? What is the underlying motive inside the heart of Cain when he murdered Abel? The Bible tells us it was anger. So the, the motivating underlying root behind the first murder recorded in history was anger. I'm not making this up. Genesis 4, you don't have to go there. I'll read it for you. Genesis 4, verse uh, 5, 6, 7. Cain was very angry, there's a word, and his face fell. That's interesting, isn't it? When you get angry, does, don't you feel like you just, your whole countenance just changes, right? My kids say that, oh, we know when dad gets angry. He doesn't even have to say a word. We can just see it flash in his eyes. His face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, again, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? It's like a physical aspect. If you do well, so God is warning Cain here, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's teaching him here. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Think about that, guys. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. In other words, sin is trying to hurt you. It's trying to work against you. It's not working for your benefit. It's working against you, contrary to you, your best interest. Therefore, you must rule over it. The root of the first murder was anger. Anger is a real issue. And murder is merely the expression of anger. And when Cain came to his decision point, I want to call it a decision point, right? Where God instructed him, you must rule over that desire, that anger. When Cain came to that decision point, Cain decided to give in. He decided to give in to his anger. And what did it do? It destroyed him. It destroyed his brother. It destroyed his family. And it destroyed history in so many ways. In the same way, the people of Jesus' time took this, you know, commandment of don't murder, and they too missed the point. They thought, well, I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm okay, right? In other words, what's on the inside doesn't matter. As long as in the outside, I haven't murdered anybody. That's garbage. It's hogwash. What if you had a friend whom you really loved, but then later on you find out they're only pretending on the outside to love you, not really on the inside? Now, can you argue that what's on the inside doesn't really matter? No. <laughs> Anybody who's human knows that what's on the inside is hugely important. And this is why Jesus was directly telling people that what's on the inside matters just as much as what's on the outside. You may not murder on the outside, but you have this anger and this lack of love and this hatred on the inside. And that's why, brothers and sisters, the greatest commandment is to love God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, right? Notice, all of those things are where? Yes, they're all on the inside. We don't want to have, I mean, imagine a society where, yeah, there's no murder, 
but also there's no love. We're obeying the sixth commandment, but but are we really? Because there's no love. So everybody goes around all the time annoyed and angry, calling each other names, having this ugly, like, feeling towards each person. And even if we don't say it, we think it, they're dumb, they're stupid, what a fool. But do we need to even imagine this? Isn't this happening now? Let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Hasn't there ever been a person in your life where if they were just like gone or maybe something unfortunate (laughs) happened to them, you'd find a certain degree of like a morsel of satisfaction, right? Well, that right there, that's what a murderer has inside of them too. So there's not a whole lot of a difference on the inside, in God's eyes, between us and a murderer. And maybe the only reason that we haven't actually gone out and murdered a person is not because we honor the image of God in them, right? That's not why, oh, like, I hate this guy, but I'm not going to murder because he's in the image of God. No, we don't murder the person because like, dang, there's a lot of people watching. (laughs) And if I murder him, I'm going to go to prison. And that's the reason I don't want to murder him. That's the reason I'm not murdering him. Our heart is not all that different from the heart of the convicted murderer. So yes, we may be avoiding the judgment of the world, but we can't escape the eyes and judgment of God. He isn't fooled by our facades. And so we let our anger go unresolved, and then what does that anger do? It rots into hate, kind of devolves into hate. And we speak ill about certain people. We spread rumors about them. Heck, you know, I don't even have to be behind their back. I'll say it to their face, you know, sometimes we'll say, right? That's the same heart that a murderer has. But still, we think, I'm an okay person. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Don't you think it's interesting that when he's talking about murder here in in 21 and on chapter 5, He's not talking about physical attacks. He's talking about what's on the inside. The word used in verse 22 for you fool, you see there in verse 22, you fool. The Greek word there is more. Sound familiar with or sound similar to a word that we use, right? Our modern English word moron comes from that word. So we need to ask ourselves, have we ever said or thought the word moron against somebody? Against maybe a political figure? Against your teacher? Against a coworker, your boss? Your parent? Yourself, even? Have you called somebody an idiot or thought that? Or stupid? I must confess that I do, and I am not proud of it. And that means I have the same root of murder as any convicted murderer. And so I want to ask my children to keep me accountable. I need the accountability of the church, and I need the accountability of my family and my children. 
because the warning is so clear. And kids at home, if you're listening, keep your parents accountable. And don't let them sin in this way. And you kids don't sin in this way. We curse someone and we are liable to the same judgment as a murderer. I want to move on with what we've heard here, this root of of murder. What do we do with this anger, right? The the root of this murder is anger. What do we do with it? Well, anger is the absence of patience and love and generosity, all fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? And so, as I've just confessed myself, that anger, it's not easy to let go. It's not easy to wrap your hands around and control like Cain failed to do, right? And we often fail to do. It's not easy to resolve our anger. And guess what, guys? It's not supposed to be easy, right? Anger can be very deep-rooted from things that have happened a very long time ago in your life. For example, I believe every man and woman, every person, has a little boy or little girl inside of them, and this little boy and little girl has had their own past hurts and insults and trauma and insecurities and injustices done against them, and then also their sins perpetrating their own sins. I understand this. And so a lot of their, this anger might be justified, but God says this, God is the judge, not you. Romans 12, 19. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He will repay. So just forgiving somebody doesn't mean that injustice will not be taken care of. In God's wisdom, in His way, you can trust, we can trust that it will be taken care of. So as far as you, your role, You let him be the judge. You let him avenge. You let him, you let God repay. What do you do? You take that anger and you bring it to the cross. You take that anger that poisons the whole person, that colors the whole, rather it discolors actually everything in your present and in your future. And because Jesus loves you, he's letting you know And he's giving you this teaching in Matthew 5 to let go of that anger, to address it. And what does he say? To reconcile it, right? To address it. And that's what that second part of that part in Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. In other words, there's nothing more important, even the worship of God, because they're tied together, right? Right? You can't properly worship God if you know that somebody has something, if there's some kind of conflict, a a wall in your relationship with someone in your church. Don't worship, God is saying. It's not a priest who's saying this or it's a high priest. Jesus Christ, the one whom we worship, is telling you, stop your worship. I'm not saying I don't love you, (laughs) 
But I'm saying part of your worship is to love the image of God in that person and to confess and to admit that you're wrong and for there to be reconciliation. And in that is true worship. God's intention is not for you to be just a person doing the bare minimum of not murdering somebody. What he wants for us is so much more. He wants for us to live a life free from anger, full of joy. He wants us to, when we have anger, to resolve it quickly, like he says there, settle, verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary, right? And that's what Jesus is saying, so that your heart won't be poisoned with ill thoughts and ill words. I hope you're feeling that anger is a very serious thing that Jesus takes very seriously himself. So here's what we do with this anger. How do we get rid of that anger? How, where, where does it go? Right? This is the gospel power to get rid of the root of murder, anger. In Matthew 18... I'm going to tell you a story, and it's authored by Jesus. And we find it recorded in Matthew 18. And I want to tell you a story that will help you understand how you can take that anger and you can completely diffuse it and take its power away. It's through the power of the gospel. One day Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus talking, he's now explaining this, is the kingdom of heaven, in other words, God's, his plan, the way he, things ought to be, is a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he, had been, uh, that he had be sold to repay the debt. So that's, he's got this debt, 10,000 talents, ESV, study Bible gives us this note, one talent was valued at about 6,000 drachmas, which is like 20 years wages for a common laborer. Long story short, <laughs> one talent would be $600,000 today, U.S. dollars, Therefore, 10,000 talents would be, in today's terms, $6 billion. I don't know how he ran up that kind of a debt, but there it is. This is the story that Jesus told, not me. So he's saying that this man had a $6 billion debt. In other words, insurmountable. And if he wasn't able to pay it, which of course he couldn't, he would be imprisoned until he could pay the last penny. Does that ring a bell with um, Matthew 5? right? That last verse there um, in that portion of the sermon. Until you could repay the full debt. So the servant, verse 26, fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Six billion dollars he canceled the debt and let him go. Story continues. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
Now, 100 denarii, same kind of calculation, comes out to about $12,000. So it's, you know, not a small amount of money, but compared to 6 billion, I actually did the math. If you compared, the ratio would be, if 6 billion were like $100,000, do you know what the $12,000 would be? Two dimes, 20 cents. So that's the same ratio. And his fellow servant, so he says, he grabbed the guy who owed him this small amount of money. He comparatively began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees. Same words that he used with the king. Now he's using to this guy. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which he can't because it's $6 billion. So he, that means he's going to be tortured forever. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Again, the inside is what matters. As I said, that comparison, the ratio is $6 billion, $100,000 compared to what this guy owed him. It was 20 cents. This story is not just a story. This story is a gospel that describes our relationship that has been broken with God. And God is a holy God who gifted us His image when we rejected that. We sinned against an eternally, infinitely holy God, and therefore the crime must fit, the punishment must fit the crime, right? The punishment fits the crime. And so if we sin against this infinite God, then the punishment is infinite which is to pay back an unpayable debt. And if we can't, then we get thrown into prison where we'll, we'll be tortured. I mean, this is, Jesus is not trying to mince words. He's being very direct. He even says that in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Why? Because you've been forgiven of $6 billion. And you can't forgive 20 cents? <laughs> or to be more accurate, okay, $100,000. And you can't forgive 20 cents, two dimes. I guess I think, you know, for me, the main point is this. When I really think about what he has forgiven me of, and I'm really in that, I'm not saying I'm, all, I'm there all the time, but an amazing thing happens. All the offenses that have been uh, um, you know, perpetrated upon me, it really does shrink in perspective to 20 cents. And I think about this often, this very story. It's one of my favorite stories because this story gives me the power to forgive, even when I don't want to. And so I want to give you a saying. Um, I think, um, I don't know if we... But the saying is this, where there's reconciliation, 
there's a forgive-er and a forgive-e, right? Or you can flip it around. There's a forgive-e and a forgive-er. And so going back to Matthew 5, when he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, or it could go the other way around too, go be reconciled to them. And do you know how to reconcile? Like I said there, and like we see in this story, this man, right, the servant, the first servant, he was both what? He should have been at least. He, sh- he was both the forgivee, received the forgiveness, and he should have been the forgiver. But he failed. But you and I, we don't have to fail. Because you and I, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We have the gospel. We have been forgiven. You are a forgivee, first and foremost. And therefore, you have the power. You have God out of the riches of his treasury of grace has transferred billions of dollars into your account. What is 20 cents of sin perpetrated against you? It's chump change. Let it go. It's nothing when you compare the riches that he's poured out upon you. That unpayable debt that he's forgiven me and you of. So never forget that you are a former sinner. I am a former sinner, forgiven of my sins. Therefore, I hope that that will give us a reminder from this chapter and from all the other gospels, uh, you know, and all the other parables about forgiveness that we haven't even talked about today. We could do a whole, like, seminar. Uh, we, maybe one day we will on forgiveness all of those gospel presentations where we have been forgiven and out of the riches of his forgiveness, we can just easily share the riches with other people. You're a part of God's family. That's how God's family rolls. God forgives. If you're part of his family, you'll forgive. That's as simple as that because you are created in his own image. So the more you meditate on your role as the forgivee under God, the more you'll be able to embrace God's call for you as a forgiver. So I'm going to give you a few practical ways really quickly. I'm going to fly through these. First, like I said, remember your identity as the forgivee who was forgiven an unpayable debt. Meditate on that. Second, when you pray, pray for your enemy. And when you pray for them, don't just pray for justice to be showered down on their head, okay? (laughs) Pray for blessing. Bless your, your enemy. Third, remember that God is the judge, not you, Romans. So that when you try to take revenge, you're actually trying to supplant God from his throne, and his role as king and judge. You don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Let God administer justice. He says literally, vengeance is mine. Leave it to him. Your role is then to just remember your role as a forgivee, and then to extend that same generosity and give out of the riches that you receive, give to others who offend you. Here's another thing. We don't forgive because we feel like it. We forgive because we know that God is real and he asked you to. That's it. 
In other words, it's just faith. You forgive by faith. You don't forgive by emotion. You don't forgive by feeling. You forgive by faith. God, you asked me to forgive. I even pray this, guys. I often do this. I go, I don't want to forgive this person, God, but I know what you told me, so I'm taking one little baby step. I want to forgive. And we start, we'll start there. Help me to forgive. And you can go from there. And you do this by faith. I want to close with this uh, personal story. Um, I told you guys that I think a lot of times our anger is hard to resolve because we have an anger that's, it traces back, way back into like our past. And so because of that, like a root, it's had so much time, maybe 15, 20 years, 30 in some cases, to really grow. And like, you know, like a root, the deeper it grows, the harder it is to pull out, right? So some of these hurts, some of these, these angers are, they come from these deep-rooted, literally, um, hurts um, when we were little boys or, or little girls. And so for me, one of my pet peeves that really gets me going, gets me angry, I'm not proud of this, but I'm confessing, is um, when people face some kind of like sin or hardship and then they can't push through. And I just get like, I kind of get like arrogant. I'm like, what's your problem? Just push through, dude. Like, what, ma- what, what makes you think you're so special that everything has to be set up perfectly for your life sucks? Just deal, push through. And that doesn't make for a very good pastor a lot of times. <laughs> and it doesn't make for a very good dad or husband a lot of times. It makes for a good coach, and I do that a lot. Um, so <laughs> there's a silver lining there, but it's not good. It's not good. I'm making light, but it's, I shouldn't make light. It's not good. And it's, it's not been good for my family, for my kids. Um, and so I, I've been trying to like understand. And just in, I'm sharing something with you that I just learned about myself like a month ago, like literally just a few weeks ago. I'm walking with my wife, Christy, and um, I'm talking about this issue with her. I'm like, why do I have this reaction? Like when my kids, when the kids do this and I don't like it, and I just like, ah, you know, I flare up. And that, what is that about? It's so weird, you know, if you think about it. And I realized that a lot of it comes from when I was a kid, and some of you may or may not know this, I lost my brother to a swimming accident uh, when I was five, almost six, and he was almost three. Um, one day we went to, you know, it was Sunday, woke up like any other day, went to church, went to a friend's house. It was like a small group thing our parents were going to, and they had a swimming pool, and he was in the swimming pool. I ran out with all the other kids, and there was this, it looked like a doll. Some people thought it was a doll, but then I looked and I realized this doll um, has like the same clothes as my brother, and it just kind of hit me. And I was only, you know, not even, you know, six, barely, uh, you know, five and a half or whatever. And, and he died that day. And um, I didn't remember this until much later, like recently. I remember coming home and just having this thought like, so you're meaning to tell, his name was Eugene. You're meaning to tell me that Eugene, I was just kind of thinking this as a kid. 
He was just there this morning because we shared in the same room. And now he's not. So where is he? I don't get it. Like he's gone? And for how long? And where did he go? And I just had all these questions as a little five-year-old trying to reconcile what happened that day in the span of just a few hours. And I had a lot of pain from that, but here's where my wife was, you know, so wise. We're talking about this, and she goes, honey, can I ask you a question? When you were feeling that pain, what did your parents do? Not much. They kind of just, they were probably going through their own pain. They didn't really pay attention. Um, I think my dad told me, like, just get over it. Just stop crying. And that's when it hit me. That's why when I see somebody having some kind of hardship, I just go, come on, man. Just push through. Because that was ingrained in me from a young age. It was a sin. And it grew into an anger. And so... I said, no, not really. He just kind of told me to you know, stop crying. And then my, my uh, wife, you know, Christy, she says, do you know what you need to do, young? And in a mocking tone, I said, what? Forgive my dad, right? And then she said something that just blew me away. She said, nope. What you need to do is you need to be tender to that young boy in you, that five-year-old boy, and tell him, Jesus is with you. And Jesus is in your pain. And as Jesus is in your pain, that anger will dissipate. And that's what I want to share with you guys. If there's some kind of anger, whether it's deep-rooted or recent, tell yourself, preach the gospel to yourself that Jesus is with you in your pain. And whatever anger, whatever injustice you feel, Jesus is there with you, feeling that with you. He is God with us after all, amen? And I can't tell you, since then, I have felt this weight lifted. My kids can tell you themselves that in the last month, dad has been different. <laughs> they don't know why until maybe today, but they don't know why, and now they know. It's because Christ is with me and he's suffered with me and he suffered on the cross for me and he forgave me my unpayable debt and when he died on the cross, my pain and my anger died with him and I'm resurrected freshly image of God ready to go, ready to love, ready to forgive. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much that you will not let us live the rest of our days deceived. You actually care too much about us. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you gave us these direct words in Matthew 5. You've heard not to murder, but I tell you the truth. If you are even angry, you're liable to the same judgment. If you insult even somebody... You are liable to the fires of hell. We thank you that you've told us the truth so that we can be delivered from, from this 
hatred, from this anger, from the slavery to sin. And so that our image of you, the, the image bearer that we are, can be reborn as a new creation, fresh, fully ready, fully empowered, fully equipped by the power of the gospel, by the riches of your grace, as a forgivee to now go out, play the symphony of your creation, reflect the image of God all around us, and to be a forgiver. We trust in you and in your words that this will happen. In Jesus' name, amen.